welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. This is the final episode of 2022, and it's been a busy year here on the Commune Podcast. We've produced over 100 episodes, and the show has been downloaded over 3 million times. And all I can say is thank you. It's truly an honor to do this work, to spend my life in conversation with people 10 times smarter than me. And I don't take your listenership for granted. Now, there are a lot of places that you could spend your time, and I deeply appreciate that you have focused your precious attention here. And hopefully my gratitude is reflected in the rigor that I try to bring to every episode. I really feel like I've gotten a PhD over the last year, and that opportunity to learn wouldn't be possible without receptive ears on the other side. So I look forward to another year of excavating the ideas that can hopefully lead to greater personal societal and planetary well-being. Okay, on today's show, my better three-quarters, my long-suffering betrothed, Skylar, turns the proverbial table on me, and she quizzes me on the five essential components of well-being and on all the far-flung protocols that I have adopted this year to upgrade my health, and there have been a lot of them. So hopefully, you'll be inspired to implement some of these strategies in your own life in 2023. Of course, I also encourage you to check out the Commune course platform, which really is unique in its breadth. Now, there are yoga and meditation apps, but there is no other platform that serves as a one-stop destination for holistic well-being. The Commune programs both explain the mechanisms and then provide the modalities and praxis that pair with those mechanisms to achieve greater well-being. And really, the roster of teachers is truly unparalleled. So you can try it for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. It really does make a huge difference in the viability of the show to have more subscribers and more reviews. So thank you for that. And without further delay, here's my conversation with Skylar. So it's always, I think, profitable to occasionally turn the mic on you and interview you about um, the things you're thinking about and the things you're implementing in your life, because it's been a, been a very fertile year for you. And so I thought that in the spirit of closing out one year and opening up the gate to a new year, we could touch on the five pillars of wellness, of holistic health. Um, that's obviously something that you are constantly thinking about, writing about, interviewing luminaries about. But um, I'd love to get both your reflections on what you've learned, but also some action items around those five pillars. So those five pillars being nutrition, the stuff you eat, put in your body, exercise, movement, some kind of movement practice, rest, restorative practice of some kind, whether that's meditation or yoga nidra, um, community, a rich support system of some kind, 
And, and then finally purpose, like what is it that makes you want to get out of bed every day and greet a new year? So um, maybe we can, we can just sort of start at the top. Yeah. Well, let me also say that um, I hope that this is bi-directional in nature as nature is bi-directional. And uh, just because you have been for decades, really my inspiration around my health journey and also really the, the torchbearer for most of these modalities. And I've been kind of flailing aimlessly in, in your wake. Until and, the student superseded the teacher. So right, <laughs> here we <wow>. are. <laughs> yeah, when the student is ready. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll just say, you know, we're both 52 now. I've caught up with you as I do at the end of every year. And the year is coming to a denouement. That, you know, overall we're doing well, you know, in our overarching holistic well-being, but not without chinks in the armor. So I, I'm excited to talk about some of the progress, some of the protocols that I've been able to reify in my life and some of the impacts of those protocols, but also, you know, where we've continued to fall short and and, and where we need to improve. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that um, that shapes this conversation with uh, a little humility and humanity. So yeah, I'm I'm happy to dive in wherever you want to go. Um, let's just start at the top. Let's just start with food and well, food and the other things we like. I said also would include whatever things you put on your body, the air we breathe, the products we use, but primarily our food and supplementation. Yeah. For decades, I mean, we've been together for going on 35 years um, and we've had numerous bouts with different kinds of food protocols. We were, you know, grilled cheese vegetarians basically in college. Walks, lots of walks and grilled cheese. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, (laughs) we recently recounted the story of uh, our foray into the John Jay meal services at Columbia University where we used to go with a garbage bag under the auspices of the most minimal package, food package that we could muster on our budget and fill the garbage bag. It was a white glad garbage bag with all of the vegetables from the vegetable trays that populated the salad bar. And that white um, glad garbage bag would live in our refrigerator and we would empty it in small denominations into what was at that juncture. Cutting edge walk. The bleeding edge of, of <laughs> culinary science in the United States, which was the walk. The walk. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I purchased oh. a walk every year for four years and bought walks for everyone for Christmas. Um, and of course, you know, that, that was the way that we thought we were we were under the illusion of being healthy. At it wasn't that so bad in the grand scheme of, of college kids. Yeah. I mean, it, it could have been plenty worse. of grilled cheese on scraped Calflon pants and yeah. whatnot. But, um, you know, I think that, uh, over time, I mean, you, <laughs> I remember also in college, you instituted certain rules. Um, and this was an era where chivalry wasn't as dead as it, as it may be now, but that, you banned French fries and peanut butter, which was uh, 
Yeah. That's, uh, it was mean it, of me. It's a miracle that I stuck, stuck with it. <laughs> stuck with um, me. Yes. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I was always under the impression that I was eating a very healthy diet. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, this year was a relatively fertile year for my health and instituting various health protocols. And, and one of those kind of eye-opening moments for me was when I started to wear the continuous glucose monitor. Um, and I was all of a sudden had a window um, into my metabolic health and discovered that I was essentially running pre-diabetic blood sugar levels. So uh, fasting glucose levels of, you know, somewhere in the 120 milligrams per deciliter range and then spiking up into the, you know, the 200 range. Maybe you can break that down a little bit in layperson's terms. Like, okay. So, for me, cause yeah. So I'm a layperson about these things. Yeah. So, you, you know, you metabolize food. So metabolism is essentially the body's, uh, process of converting, uh, food into energy. Um, and that has a whole variety of steps, which I won't go into too much, but essentially you're absorbing food through or macronutrients through your small intestine into your bloodstream and you can absorb, um, you know, glucose or fat or proteins. Um, if you're absorbing too much glucose and you're running high blood glucose levels, that is an indication of metabolic dysfunction. You're putting a lot of stress on your pancreas to produce the hormone insulin to get that glucose into your cells for energy production. Over time, you can become insulin resistant. And then it's also the precursor for type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, um, and even dementia and Alzheimer's. In fact, Alzheimer's has been dubbed type 3 diabetes at this juncture yeah, because of it's crazy. Yeah, essentially insulin resistance in your neurons because your brain requires a tremendous amount of energy. And your right, like 20% of our food goes to our brain or something. Yeah, 20% of radical. the overall energy allocation, basically. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, when you're running high blood glucose levels, uh, essentially that's an indication that you're running high insulin levels, but it's also an indication that the glucose is not getting into your cells for energy production. And then that excess glucose can get stored as glycogen, essentially glucose for a rainy day in your liver. Um, but otherwise it gets stored as uh, adipose tissue, as fat, often visceral fat, adipocytes, triglycerides, basically often in your midsection. And, uh, and that kind of fat can be very inflammatory and obesity is obviously very correlated with all of those diseases. We can kind of get into that a little bit, maybe when we talk about exercise, but, um, and then also excess glucose in your blood, uh, stream can also add to inflammation. It can get glycated, essentially create what's known as advanced glycation end products, which is inflammation that circulates around your vascular system and can pock up your endothelium and lead to cardiovascular disease. You're Maybe merging off the layperson's language, well, but I get, I get the, I get the top you, line. You asked, <laughs> you asked. So anyways, I was oh. running basically high blood glucose levels. And, um, and what was, what was it 
primarily that would spike them? Do you like, was it, what, what surprised you? Obviously a cookie or like a, you know, big piece of bread or what, what was surprising? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, the interesting thing is that you can do a lot of N of one experiments where, you know, and of course there's a lot of bio individuality involved here. So what might spike me might not spike someone else. But, you know, the typical suspects were certainly on display, you know, refined sugars, refined grains, ultra processed foods, but then also healthy foods when eaten on their own. So like blueberries, which of course are famous for antioxidants. And, you know, of course, when you eat them, they have fiber too. But for some reason, you know, I was particularly sensitive yeah, to I blueberries. So weird. Um, when I ate them outside of a matrix. So when I ate them alone, but then when I, you know, ate them with fiber and fat, then I didn't see the same spike. So a lot of that is learning how to cadence your consumption and eating foods that might otherwise spike you or that, or carbs kind of in the right order. Um, in any case, it was an eye opener for me um, to see, you know, that I was pre-diabetic. It was an eye opener for me. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of back this up a little bit, one of the dynamics of ourselves for our entire relationship was that, you know, I could basically eat pretty much anything. I mean, I eat, really, I eat very healthily, but still I, I never like really don't gain weight easily. And you always could like look at a bagel and get a little, you know, subcutaneous fat lining. Yeah, there was and we would sort of... I mean, I feel like for many, many years, I mean, pretty much our whole relationship, we more or less ate the same number of calories. And you, we just, I mean, we just had an understanding that you had kind of bad genes in that department. And I had, was blessed with good genes in that department. And what's been totally mind boggling to me is that, you know, genetics aren't in fact destiny. And that you have like, you are this crazy living lab rat of hacking your microbiome and your, your cardiovascular, I guess your, your uh, metabolic health, I guess is the main thing. You like, mm -hmm. it, you, you about faced your, yeah, your I metabolic health. My insulin resistance is essentially uh -huh. my determination. Um, and there's a whole variety of mechanisms at play or protocols at play. I think that, that, inf that influenced that reversal. Uh, I mean, the first key was just acknowledging it and, and seeing it because mm -hmm. I could have easily just kept kind of, you know, not limping along. I had a yeah. fine life, but I mean, as you say, I would, uh, you know, absorb, um, glucose kind of almost through, uh, your eyeballs. Os osmosis. <laughs> yeah. And, or, or seemingly, and you know, this is a common trope that, you know, oh, you know, my metabolism is, I just don't have good metabolism. Right. That was, kind, that was that. sort of our, our line. I mean, it's sort of yeah. like, yeah, it's like, and, and it's not that the story um, that we yeah. told about you forever. Yeah. Well, and it's not that metabolism is completely disconnected from genetics, but it is highly adaptable right um you know through a whole variety of different means so you know why was i insulin resistant well i mean you know there's a whole bunch of different factors that could point to that i mean certainly i've never been a very good sleeper so um you know even a couple nights of of insomnia or poor sleep can contribute to 
insulin resistance and lower insulin sensitivity. Um, and of course, you know, there were bouts of yeah. months upon months upon months when I wasn't sleeping. Um, you know, you lop additional um, stressors on top of that. So tons of travel, tons of travel, but young kids, you know, <laughs> stress, I think for me for a very long time was just kind of, you know, de rigueur, um, certainly as it pertained to my professional life. And there were times that were more stressful, you know, than others for, for sure. But, you know, I always put a lot of pressure on myself to perform professionally. And, you know, that was like part of my self-identification and the badge of honor that I would wear and the role in society that I felt I, I needed to play and the judgment through other people's eyes that I was very married to. And so, you know, stress, you know, without getting too deep into the kind of physiological mechanisms of stress, I mean, the most obvious one was an agitated sort of HPA access, uh, access that was stimulating chronic cortisol. Explain um, the HPA. Give, 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 me, give me the... So hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal, it's like a, the primary endocrine axis um, for a number, for the secretion of a number of different hormones. And that happens when you go into beta waves, alpha, I mean, like deep sleep or, or what is it? Or is it just a good and enough sleep? Like what, what well, so stimulates HPA that? Will, that access will often be stimulated by sort of, uh, amygdala excit excitation or anything stress, fear related. Oh, so anything that would push you kind of into a sympathetic state. Mm -hmm. So, and that's highly, you know, concomitant with, cortisol release. So this is obviously I'm not alone in this at all. No. Um, this is what we're seeing kind of on an epidemic level, but, um, certainly like high chronic high cortisol levels are going to influence your blood glucose levels. So they're tied together, you know, so certainly, and that's just one mechanism. So, you know, lack of sleep, stress, and then really under kind of a closer microscope, really identify, you know, identifying habits in my diet, um, that weren't optimal. Right. So eating too late at night. Yeah. And you almost always had like a little dessert thing at the end of the day, you had a, you always had a little dessert thing. A little dessert thing yeah. often. Um, right and before then just, bed. you know, not yeah. particularly mindful about the cadence of eating, mm -hmm. um, and not adopting other protocols that I've since, uh, adopted around like hydrotherapy and fasting and all these other kinds of things that then kind of fit into this larger metabolic health piece. matrix. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, we've, we've sort of, um, I think we've kind of, well, we've skipped, that's fine because none of, obviously there's no order to these pillars. They all matrix together and yeah. we've sort of put them in an arbitrary order, but I want to, before we let's talk about let's exercise. Talk specifically talk about a few different, dietary components because okay. I, I don't want to just skirt over that. Okay. So obviously to address blood glucose levels, which was kind of in my crosshairs, there was clearly like the need to adopt a low glycemic diet. So eliminate refined sugars, refined grains and any ultra processed foods. I wasn't eating a lot of ultra processed foods in general, but I sort of laid down a rule for myself of like, I'm not going to eat anything in, in a package. Now, of course, I'm not fundamentalist about that, but primarily been was very, very good about that for about a year. You largely um, stopped drinking. Yeah, I stopped drinking. And, no um, fun for me. 
Yeah. But good for you. But good for me. And then, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. It's like the great thing about becoming more metabolically flexible is that then you can drink and then you can cheat around the edges and go to France for two and a half weeks and eat croissant and stuff. But, yeah. um, which was also so interesting, right? Wasn't it? I mean, we were sort of like, okay, well, we're going to go to France and then Jeff will totally fall off the wagon. He'll come back with a little pouchy tummy and it completely didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah. The, not at all. Yeah. The, the muffin top stayed on the muffin, <laughs> not on me. So a low glycemic diet and, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the ketogenic diet, uh, essentially to proportion your macronutrients with 70% towards fats, 20% towards proteins and 10% towards carbohydrates. That's kind of the typical allocation. Um, I, I'm not a kind of macronutrient counter, but clearly I was keen to radically decrease the amount of refined sugars and refined grains. So no, did breads, you ever no do a macronutrient like blood workup? before and then more recently or not so much? No, I mean, no. So I've done now a number of like blood panels and there's certain biomarkers in there that are indicative of, of obviously good health shifts, particularly for me around lip, lipid panels and inflammation, et cetera. And then fasting glucose, obviously. But, um, and I haven't actually done a fasting insulin test. That's the best one that you can mm -hmm. get because that's kind of upstream from fasting glucose, um, because you can have lower glucose levels, but you know, your insulin is just pumping like crazy mm -hmm. and eventually, um, that'll all catch up gotcha. with you. But let me just, um, you know, so the, I adopted essentially a ketotarian diet, which was keto. So a focus on healthy fats, um, but not at the expense of, of vegetable intake. So a lot of cruciferous vegetables, a lot of seeds and nuts. Um, oh my God. Legumes, so many walnuts, so many walnuts. Oh. <laughs> um, and, uh, tons of salads, um, occasional, very, very high quality fatty fish, uh, line caught high grade salmon and tuna, um, et cetera. But, um, some, some, um, poultry like well sourced, Poultry? Yeah, later. Later. Yeah, you took, yeah. yeah, that's right. You cut that out for about six months. Yeah. Why cut out poultry, for example? Or like, you know, like grass fed red meat? Like, what's the, what's the big no no as you're trying to do a reboot? You know, this gets into all sorts of issues around meat and your gut, you know, and, and so obviously there are certain nutrients that are more bioavailable in meat, certain kinds, certain amino, amino acids, acids that right. are more bioavailable in meat, but you can get all of your essential amino acids, essentially all the amino acids, the nine that your body does not make endogenously. You can exogenously consume those through plants, no problem, mushrooms, quinoa, all sorts of all sorts of right. Plants. You just so, can't be a, a grilled cheese sandwich vegetarian. You just have to no, work a little harder. You got to get, work harder. But know, all, all the protein. amino acids are in plants, and you know there are other compounds in meat that you have to then probably supplement for, or be careful that you're getting enough creatine, taurine, B12. Uh, right? Isn't uh, there a whole B12 thing that you can't actually get except from 
Yeah, I, I was wrong confused about that? between B12 and B9, but you know, then it you is- can you can supplement with a B complex. And oh. I do, and that's a whole conversation we can get into around supplementation, and that's obviously an area that you've led in the relationship for some time. But um, essentially, adopting that ketotarian protocol really did work. You know, I could see, you know, with my glucose monitor the impacts of that diet, it wasn't immediate, but it was within a month or two months really that I could see my levels start to drop. And do you, do you think you'll keep it on in 2023? Yeah, I think, I think I'll keep it on and off. Um, I have become sort of more intuitively aware of my body and how it's doing. You don't believe in intuition. I don't believe in gut (laughs) instinct. Uh, I believe in intuition as a refined skill and the ability to recognize patterns. I buy that because I have lots of intuitions. But I would say they're generally grounded in experience. It's nothing airy-fairy. But like, I mean, for many years... I had all kinds of food protocols for our family that were not, I mean, I knew nothing about macronutrients or gut health. And I was just like, we should be eating, you know, everybody has to eat my sauerkraut. And I just force feed the sauerkraut to everybody in the family, everyone, you know, I mean, there was a lot of raw, you know, we had that raw milk co-op and, but I didn't really, it was never grounded. I didn't ever feel like it had to be grounded in an understanding of science. Um, did honestly feel pretty just logical. You might say intuitive. Yeah, I think, you know, intuition, I think, can be refined as a product of direct experience and you can become more present with your body and how it's feeling and recognize certain feelings without necessarily assigning semiotics or symbols or words or mechanism on top of that. Now, I think to do them hand in hand, it's probably the best, the best because right. you're like, okay, I'm feeling a greater inflammation in my body. Maybe you're not looking at your C-reactive protein biomarker, mm-hmm. um, but you're feeling that inflammation. So that is in the end, the feeling is the actual territory. The biomarker is the map. So you right. really want to in the end know the territory and not just the map, you know, the menu is not the food. You, in the end of the day, you eat the food. You don't eat the menu. So the menu is the biomarker, or the map is the biomarker. Right. And but the, sometimes uh, it's, the direct experience are, is is, I think, at the end of the day, like that is life. That's doing, you know, uh-huh. whatever. There's no symbol for it. But so, I th- if you if you're wearing like a continuous glucose monitor and you're like, oh, wow, you know, and then I I, like, wow, I really spiked after I had that thing I thought was kind of healthy. And then I got super tired, you know, that, that sort of like direct mapping and and layering of actual science on top of your feeling state is, you know, is super effective, but there's also stuff, I mean, like NSAIDs, like you used to eat NSAIDs like candy because you had so much pain in your, in your hip and back from your messed up hip. And I was always like, you have to get off those. And, but I didn't know why. I just absolutely knew that, that, that NSAIDs were bad news for your gut. I mean, you know, I'd read some, you know, somewhat woo woo science around that at some point, but then I was also pretty, I don't know. I mean, pretty clear, but 
you being the person that you are had to actually dig into the science behind it before you were like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting this off. And it's just really, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that as you know, we get more mature and if we're on a journey of trying to better ourselves and honestly look at where in these five pillars we fall short, like where we're fooling ourselves, like where we're actually living a fantasy. One of the first pieces to success in that is deciding who you are, like what kind of a learner are you, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you need to like really dig into the science or otherwise it's not really going to land or are you just good with, yeah, I, I pretty much understand that. And that totally makes sense. And I'm like inspired. Like what inspired, like what inspires you, which I suppose is a piece of purpose, really. Like what, what makes you feel like you're ready to like say no to some things that are really freaking delicious and fun, but you yeah, like I mean, I have think enough it, belief around. I think it somewhat depends if your goal is to, just optimize your own personal health or if your goal and your job is to communicate it to other people it kind of that has great impact in terms of how one approaches these topics right. of course i'm a communicator of health and i can't just say well it makes me feel great um <laughs> that doesn't really hold a lot of water so when right. you're talking about non-steroidal uh anti-inflammatories like advil, advil. etc um you know, yes, those do provide some degree of relief. And there are intelligent applications for NSAIDs uh, from time to time. Of course, I think in our culture, we tend to abuse everything, Yeah, <laughs> pharmaceuticals and particularly with NSAIDs. And, and then, you know, this really kind of cuts to back to my personal journey is the elimination of NSAIDs in combination with a whole bunch of other factors. So the consumption of probiotics, both in supplement form, but clearly in your wonderful kraut um, that uh, you so dutifully make for the family and push on us like a, like a drug dealer, um, you know, has contributed to a, a realignment or a eubiosis, I guess you would call in my gut. So if I could what trace sort of healthy balance more uh -huh. or less. Um, so you hear about dysbiosis, which is an unhealthy, uh, like an imbalance in the gut between different kinds of bacteria where you start to feed the bad bacteria and deprive the good bacteria. And over time that can lead to what is known as leaky gut or intestinal permeability where the tight junctions in the epithelium in your colon become kind of disjointed and pulled apart and endotoxins and these things called LPSs, lipopolysaccharides, which are sort of the breakdown of bacterial walls start to f flow into your bloodstream and your immune... Is the glucose monitor like demonstrating that? Is that no. linked at all to high glucose levels? It is, but you're not going to see that directly through your glucose monitor. So uh, what I'm talking about- More symptomatic. Yeah, so what I'm talking about is endotoxemia, which is an essentially stimulating or triggering your immune system to then send an inflammatory response to what it thinks is an invader, mm -hmm. um, but it's really just toxins or unidentifiable compounds entering your bloodstream through a leaky gut. Is that and the gut brain? Called the gut brain axis. Axis? No, that? not well. No, not really. I mean, 
Yes, the inflammation that then is triggered will travel through your body and cross the blood-brain barrier. Right. Uh, And affect your mood and... It can affect your mood. Hormones. Inflammation can also be correlated with blood glucose. So there. I mean, you're also reallocating a lot of energy towards dealing with inflammation. Right. And not towards, you know, proper digestion and metabolism and other things that, you know, one might need um, for, you know, just good brain health and neuroplasticity and all the different things that the body needs to function normally. So, you know, where I was really struggling is, you know, I had some form of leaky gut for Mm -hmm. sure and um, an imbalance of bacteria. So like when I started to rebuild that gut and... You never did the poops test, did you? I have not done biome or biome or Uh, any of the microbiome tests. I did that one. That was really fun. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, I did it a a number of years ago. It'd be interesting to do now, actually. It would be, um, you know, my key was obviously eliminating sugar, which is, uh, a huge thing for a healthy gut, um, eliminating NSAIDs. I haven't taken antibiotics in years and years and years eating organic foods. Um, so you're avoiding a lot of chemicals, um, like herbicides, like glyphosate that can be uh, detrimental to your, to that, those tight junctions in your, in your epithelial wall. But, um, or the epithelium in general, but also tremendous amount of fiber. So fiber became like front and center in my life. And And give me like the top, you know, five to eight sources of fiber that like really worked for you. Uh, well, certainly nuts. So tons of walnuts, as you know, I've got like little hidden bags of walnuts. Squirrel, squirrel squirrel pouches everywhere. everywhere. (laughs) Um, you know, a lot of cruciferous vegetables, uh, a lot of broccoli, a lot of spinach, um, avocado is actually a great source of fiber too. Isn't that funny? Um, That doesn't seem like, it seems like a fat. It doesn't seem fibrous at all. No. Right. Um, any kind of, well, like whole grains Mm -hmm. are good. Uh, beans and legumes are, are great source of fiber, controversial around lectins and all that stuff, but great source of fiber and sauerkraut is actually also a great source of fiber. The amazing thing about sauerkraut is that it's prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic in one fell swoop because it's prebiotic because it has fiber, it's probiotic because there's live bacteria, and then the live bacteria are actually creating metabolites in the kraut brine, basically, and so it actually has the the postbiotics in there. So um, cool. And it's so easy to make and it's so cheap. We all, can make a little, all, we can make a little video about how easy it is. All of it. We is, should do that. Honestly, this is one of the great um, misconceptions around a lot of these things is that they don't have to be that expensive. I mean, sprouts. Would Supplements be, can be super expensive, but like baseline, really good whole foods are not that expensive. Supplements can be very expensive, although you can, honestly get a lot of the micronutrients and minerals and benefits of supplements in your food. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, many people would say that it's better to get those in a matrix and it's more bioavailable and absorbable if you That get seems it in very intuitive to me. <laughs> yeah, and so there's probably let's, good some science. So let me just finish okay, go ahead. with, um, so all of that fiber was key in feeding the healthy bacteria or the healthful or health inducing bacteria in my gut. And this is what 
they thrive on. And this is obviously one of the difference between different kinds of calories. So, you know, the great uh, calories in calories yeah, out. The myth. great sort of mythology of popular metabolic science is like essentially calories in calories out. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some truth to that, but obviously every calorie has a whole different profile. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for example, if you're eating a high fiber food and fiber is carbohydrates, but those carbohydrates are not being absorbed into your bloodstream. They're indigestible fiber, which flows right down through your small intestine and into your colon and feeds your gut bug. So you might take a hundred calories of walnuts or something like that. And what you're, you're getting you quote unquote, to the degree that there is a you gets about 90 of 90 calories and Mm. your gut bugs get the other 10. I mean, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what the proportion is, but I'm just using that as an example. And those bacteria then essentially digest or ferment that fiber and produce what are known as postbiotics or metabolites or short chain fatty acids, the most famous one being butyrate. And butyrate has an unbelievable impact on your metabolism. It has an unbelievable impact on a whole bunch of different systems uh, in your body, your immune system, the integrity of the wall in your gut. So it actually protects from leaky gut. And you, Um, we make butyrate when we have a high fiber diet. Is that what you're getting at? Our bacteria make them. Right. They basically poop them out. Not really, but that's one way to think about it. Let's just say for argument's sake that it's 90, 10 for the bugs if you're eating a, a fiber um, if you're not eating something fibrous, do the bugs get nothing or almost nothing? Yeah, you're starving the bugs. The bugs. Um, now, they also like uh, polyphenols. There's other kind of phytochemicals and phytonutrients. And that, those are like pomegranates? No, what are polyphenols? Give polyphenols me are the compounds within plants um, okay. that confer a health benefit, but particularly to your gut bugs. So, you know, there's a whole wide variety of them, but for example, there's kind of flavonoids as one subcategory of them, or like allagitannins, which are the polyphenol that are in walnuts, um, that are also, uh, anti-carcinogen, but, uh, like quercetin is another one that kind of got a lot of attention during COVID. Right. I remember that um, because it was, so yeah, so your yeah. gut bugs are producing themselves these short chain fatty acids. There's three kind of famous SCFAs that are the most prominent one, but a lot of other things. And not only that, and then we can move on, but there are certain strains of bacteria in your gut. And if you have a healthy gut, you hopefully have, you know, 800 to a thousand different species right. of bacteria in there. But there are certain strains like streptococcus or enterococcus that provided that they have the building blocks like the essential amino acid tryptophan and B6 actually produce all or almost all of the serotonin in your body. So it's also not just producing short chain fatty acids. It's also producing key neurotransmitters or neuromodulators. L-ruteri, lactobacillus ruteri is the bacteria that produces oxytocin. So your oxytocin levels, you know, that feeling of belonging, but also obviously very key in, in birth and in breast Breast milk. Right. And is there a high level in breast milk? There are a high level of 
bacteria in general in yeah. breast milk, obviously, which is why it's so important to breastfeed um, for, you know, the gut flora of your child. But one of the contributing factors to essentially your milk letting down is oxytocin, which right. is created or and upregulated through this one particular uh, lactobacillus ruteri. So, mm. so there's a virtuous cycle. There's happening. a virtuous cycle and it's just so... Amazing. Unbelievable yeah. that we essentially co-evolved yeah, with, with these a bunch bugs. of prokaryotes yeah. that were seeking shelter in an anaerobic world and found it in our guts. Yeah, and well, so, in all animals' guts. Yeah, you know, right? and there's a sort of a fun argument gathering <laughs> moment yeah. around the co-evolution of it and mutual interdependence and all the kind of more spiritual, spiritual and philosophical concepts around dependent origination and everything depending on everything else. Yeah. Who's really running the show. But then, yeah, but then there's a separate right. one in terms of who's really running the show. And, you know, mitochondria, for example, is a bacteria. It's a bacteria of going back 2 billion years that jumped into an archaea that then essentially found a host or a whole series of different hosts, one of which is human beings. And so are we just, you know, a meat wagon, yeah. like with a, making an awesome playground for the evolution of these bugs. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Who's here to no. serve what Who? aim? And, you know, you can also see your own health through a bacteria's eye of the world, you know, or your mitochondria's vision of the world. And so how do you align your behaviors and protocols to best serve them such that you best serve yourself. yourself right. And these are kind of the process of actually unearthing your adaptive mechanisms that have evolved over you know billions of years on one level, if you talk about mitochondria and bacteria, and then hundreds of thousands of years as they pertain to kind of the homo sapien form. Before we um, pivot away from nutrition. Let's talk briefly about supplementation because it has engenders all, all kinds of controversy. Um, and what you think, and I can say what I think, obviously, but um, like what you think is like what is absorbed well, like if you're, if you're working on a budget and you feel like you generally would like to take two or three supplements because that's about what your budget can support. Like, what are the ones? I mean, I'd be curious to know yours, and I'll tell you. Yeah, what. I mean, vitamin D right now has come to the fore as a very, very key vitamin. We don't mm -hmm. get enough of it just from the sun, particularly in northern latitudes. So, And in our modern lifestyle. Yeah, and I think the last I saw, we spend 6% of our overall time outdoors. But regardless of that, we still need to supplement with vitamin D. Um, for all sorts of processes in the body, but particularly, you know, the immune system. Um, there are certain bacteria and pathogenic fighting cells that actually have vitamin D receptors on them that essentially upregulate the ability for those particular immune um, cells to be effective, to essentially engage in phagocytosis or whatever. And do, um, do you see your understanding that a vitamin D supplement is easily absorbable? Uh, I, I think so. You know, this is not an area where I have like a tremendous amount of expertise, but mm -hmm. I will say that, you know, particularly kind of with the liposomal, the liposomal mm -hmm. um, 
transmission. So a lot of vitamins are very high quality, high stringency products right now are very focused on delivery methods. Mm -hmm. Um, that's certainly true for the probiotic world because, you know, a lot of people will contend rightfully so that you can take probiotics, but essentially the enzymes in your stomach Kill them uh, annihilate right. them before they actually get down into your gut. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a very you know high quality delivery mechanism. You know the phospholipids that are integral to the liposomal transmission essentially mimic kind of the constituents of the body. So their contention is like that if you deliver it that way, there's more bioavailability, more absorbability of vitamins. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard other people contend that, you know, glutathione, for example, is just you can't, you can't really get supplement it. it. You can't really supplement uh -huh. it, you know, but. You can only create the conditions for it to be released. Yeah. I uh -huh. mean, to be honest, I don't really know. I mean, I know about glutathione synthesis in the mitochondria. I don't really know about too much about how, uh, you know, absorption rates mm -hmm. from exogenous consumption, but um, so I'd say vitamin D, I mean, vitamin C is kind of like an obvious one, but your body just doesn't make it. So you really do need to get it somewhere. Vitamin, so B, B, C and D, because you also have to have B. So that's kind of like your basics. And do you think if you're taking like a high quality multivitamin, you think you're getting that? I think, you know, you probably can, depending upon what your other diet mm -hmm. looks like. I mean, with vitamin D, you really can't overdose on it. I mean, you'd have to right, take so out, many, right? yeah. so much. So I would say, you know, those three are key. Uh, what about fish oils? You know, I'm a big high quality fish oil or like an algae based if you're vegetarian. Yeah, certainly the consumption of omega-3 fatty acids, yeah. so DHA and EPA mm -hmm. particularly, are harder to get in the plant world with the exception of certain um, like Seaweeds. spirulina mm -hmm. and, and, and algae. Obviously the fish get it from eating the algae. Mm -hmm. You know, the, obviously the fish have, there's some synthesis that goes on when they eat the algae, but you can also get to my knowledge, DHA and EPA, um, omega-3s through the consumption of some algaes and I believe spirulina. So, but that being said, yeah, some fatty fish um, oil mm -hmm. supplements or, you know, just eating, eating right. fatty fish. But a lot, um, there's not a lot of people who are eating fatty fish twice a week. So I guess, for, and we, we don't, I mean, you know, we eat a couple of times a month. So it feels that, I mean... It, intuitively it seems yeah. like like a fish oil or a or a algae you know some kind of an algae compound um is like closer to a whole food than many supplements that feel like far more like derived like chemicals that are derived from mm -hmm. you know what i mean more like compounds that are made in a lab versus like a thing that's put in a capsule all right well let's let's pivot away because i i need to go lie down okay <laughs> i'm not feeling so very well as you know um so let's let's just talk a bit about exercise and and restorative practices and, and where where you've tracked and changed in those modalities and i'll weigh in if it feels relevant mm -hmm. yeah just to close the chapter on food the other big component of it is just when you eat so the right. window in which you consume food that's a whole area to excavate at some point around intermittent fasting. Such a drag. Um, 
Not a drag at all. Not for you. Not for me. Drag very, for very, me. It's become very easy. You can train yourself to do this without too much difficulty. It's absolutely free. So you save money while upgrading virtually every cellular pathway in your body. Um, and this goes to also just the greater point that, you know, our adaptive mechanisms in our body developed around periods of scarcity. Mm. Culture has hijacked our evolution to the degree that there is no, the time. there's not a lot of scarcity anymore. So we're essentially having to mimic the way we used to live. And fasting is one of those ways, obviously baked into every spiritual tradition. So there's tons of obviously good spiritual and philosophical reasons to be fasting, but it also just triggers all of your repair mechanisms in your body and certain longevity pathways and gene, I know all of that. And gene I expression do. Pathways. Why is it so hard for me? It's just so hard for me. Oh, just drink it's water. An, You're fine. Anyway, so anyways, moving, but, um, moving, moving on. along. So yeah. So I guess, uh, exercise, I've always exercised a lot. Um, I guess the short moral of that story is that you can't really exercise yourself into good health alone, or mm -hmm. even in some cases, I could never really exercise myself into being lean, mm -hmm. you know, but I always got a lot of cardiovascular exercise and that's good. You know, there's different opinions in terms of, are we shooting for high intensity exercise versus kind of zone two mm -hmm. exercise where you're, you're kind of your VO2 maxes, which is the kind of how you're measuring that, you know, you're really kind of just getting your heart rate up to maybe 60 to 70%. Like a vigorous walk yeah. as opposed to running. As to running. So I, to be honest, for me, like I found a good mix between mm -hmm. the two. Uh, as you know, we, we both are avid tennis players. And for me, that's maybe a little more strenuous than it is for yes, you. But, um, but, you know, I'll jam yeah. my heart rate and, and really go for, for probably too long, honestly. Um, but I enjoy it. Um, but then, you know, I've really been able to mix that up with, you know, walking, particularly walking up hills. Mm -hmm. We live in a hilly area of Los Angeles. And of course, everyone talks about the blue, blue zones. zones. Well, the keys hilly. to the blue zones. Yeah. yeah people, stairs. Well, we also have downstairs. 72 stairs to get up to our house. So there's that. That's true. Um, <laughs> it's good for your booty. Um, and, uh, but for me, the big shift this year was interspersing resistance training mm -hmm. um, with cardiovascular training to the point where I think it's, I think you should really aim for about 50-50 between the two of them. You know, my protocol, which I try to do actually every day, but don't always accomplish it every day, which is 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 100 pull-ups. Let's just be clear that after dinner, Jeff like hits the floor and does like 50 push-ups, which to me... Seems crazy. So there's really <laughs> That's a, really a, impressive. Like I'm on the couch. And you're <laughs> well, this actually goes back to glucose um, issues. Resistance training and cardiovascular exercise both are unbelievable glucose sinks. So mm -hmm. you, I can't recommend strongly enough the notion of getting some exercise, even light exercise after you eat. Mm -hmm. Particularly if you're going to do resistance training, you can just drop and do 50 push-ups, because that is, uh, you know, your muscles are essentially just consuming that glucose mm -hmm. and sucking it right out of your bloodstream. That seems so, so 
hard to do. I'm like with a full belly and like, oh, it's hard yeah. enough to do a push up. But yeah. it's, yeah, and you don't look, it doesn't look hard it does, to you. Yeah, You're yeah, just a little jackrabbit. Yeah. So, you know, overall I've been able to lean out, but also gain muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And that's a really tricky equation because if you're intermittent fasting and, and on a low glycemic diet and you're doing cold water therapy, right, along with eating. that, that's catabolic in nature. So how do you anabolic? Which means catabolic. You're, you're, you're uh, eating muscle. You're basically losing muscle uh -huh. mass. So how do you, how do you engage in those protocols that keep you lean but also be anabolic, essentially mm -hmm. uh, building, building muscle. muscle. Fiber. Well, so, yeah, because at first when you, when you first like really hacked your, your system, you got really skinny and it was, it was too skinny and you've found a nice balance where you're just as lean, but your, your muscle mass is much better. Like yeah. It looks just way healthier. It so, just took time. It's yeah, like so, you, your pendulum swung and then it had to. Yeah. For me, it was know, important to lean out first and then develop a strategy for hypertrophy, which is essentially the growing of muscle tissue. So like I am not a gym rat and I don't have tremendous broad knowledge around all of the different tricks and tips in terms of muscle building, um, progressive overload. Yeah, sure. You know, increasing, you know, weight slowly, mm -hmm. um, really focused on on muscle engagement more than just like moving weight around. Mm -hmm. So I, I right, like I, real like, like high quality resistance training. Yeah. Like I'm more focused. Yeah. Focused when I'm at the gym around, am I really truly engaging right. the muscle versus just like, Oh, today, yeah. I, you know, I'm curling 40 pounds instead of 35 or right. whatever. So, you know, there's progressive overload, but also with a, a focus on really engaging the muscle, you know, you can increase set size and the number of reps and all, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I can, I'll leave that realm of knowledge to the more bodybuilding aficionados. For me, it was also really about kind of changing some of my dietary patterns in conjunction to when I was working out. So consuming more protein earlier in the day, I tend to have more energy to work out earlier in the day. And there's a whole bunch of reasons around your circadian rhythm and cortisol secretion and et cetera, that would point to, you know, why you might have a better workout in the late morning. At least that's certainly true for me. Um, Damn those calls you take every late morning. You know, it's late morning right now. And, uh, and your body is just more able to metabolize protein earlier in the day. And so, you know, it's, we're in the habit culturally of having like these big, heavy dinners. Yeah. If you could really engineer your life in a way or to balance kind of, you know, your social activity with your own health, uh, you know, you'd eat smaller dinners, lighter dinners and concentrate, you know, your protein consumption earlier, earlier in the that day. That of course is sometimes at, at cross with community because we are a culture where we almost all, you know, enjoy a big dinner together. And that is super important Absolutely. as well. But yeah. And this yeah. is where you can't be too fundamentalist yeah. about any of this stuff um, is, uh, you know, we haven't talked about community yet, but certainly we're headed into the holiday season now, even though this may air sometime later than the holiday season. And this is the time where we hopefully have the opportunity to linger around mm -hmm. languorous 
friends and family and communal, adopted family communal tables mm-hmm. and um you know and have that kind of interaction that's that's very meaningful but and that, that's fine to eat a yeah. big meal you know sometimes yeah. like that's just fine as and long you can as also be at the you table really without gorging, gorging your yourself face. <laughs> yeah. that's um, so hard but in any case so you know it was, for me it was like yeah uh, introducing more resistance training and tinkering with my diet such that I was actually aligning the proper nutrients with that resistance training at the right time in order to build muscle. And so far it's been pretty good. It's worked pretty, pretty well. I I see you with your shirt off quite regularly and it is working very nicely. Good job, Casper. And it's uh, yeah, it's also just from a more direct experience perspective. Yeah. I was one of those kids that had to like, cheat to do one pull-up you know they i remember the presidential yeah, fitness uh, medals of honor or whatever they so used to mean. come down by your public school and i was always had to wait till someone was turning their head and then i would like jump, jump up and be like one <laughs> you know, give me like I pass. A, um and now you know i can bang out like sets of 15 or 20 um and pull-ups are just the most incredible whole body. Yeah, it is. It's so like, whole. I can do two. Yeah, you can just engage your entire yeah. core. It's, it's core, not, quads, shoulders, yeah, yeah back. It's all yeah. of it. And then you can do the knee raises and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it just feels great to be stronger than the weight of your body. Mm-hmm. There's something there. Yeah, the defying um, gravity in a way. No? Um, I think we're pretty good on that. So, of course, the twin of, of exercise, of doing, is relaxing, undoing, unwinding, um, which would be, I, would, I guess, our, our third pillar. So you've definitely developed a, a more rigorous meditation practice this last couple of years. And uh, what else do you feel like you do that resets you, that stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system on a daily basis. Ironically, exercise, at least in the form of tennis, is a bit of a reset. I mean, exercise and restorative practices are both in the long run anti-inflammatory for different reasons. Um, You know, tennis for me is a moment where I am fully engulfed in in what I'm doing. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of self-reported well-being is geared to the connection between your thoughts and your actions. Mm -hmm. So unifying what you're doing with what you're thinking about. Um, And so there's an argument there that I think is interesting. Sure. You can, you can meditate in doing something that's really hard. Yeah. If you're, if it's happening, if your brain's doing the things, I mean, if you are in, you know, a state of coherence and all your systems are coming into in, into optimal function then you know that's really all it is it's like our, when you're playing tennis is your heart rate and your heart rate variability and your brainwave function are those things like if you were to plug yourself into an EKG and a heart monitor would you you'd probably see that even though your heart rate would be super elevated because you, you're working really hard but I bet all those other metrics have you in a pretty profound state of the measurements of a meditative state. Yeah, I think that you'd, you'd see very different hormones and different neurotransmitters present in different concentrations. Um, but I think 
Yeah, in terms of actually like aligning the different systems of your body in some form of coherence or resonance, I think, you know, certainly finding that flow state is also a very meditative place to be. Uh, But it doesn't replace meditation, really, you know, because meditation is this sort of conscious effort to be unconscious, which is has its kind of built in irony into it, you know. Um, well, I would say more like it's a conscious effort to return to to be in a constant state of observation. So yes, the, the yeah. it's more like the the net effect is being in a a place of no thinking, but the practice is always just the coming back, whatever modality you're in, because you can't force yourself into a state of of non thinking of non doing. Uh, no, you can't force yourself into it. I think you become trained. Right. More and more to be able to access that state of right, become better, like, more and more skilled. Yeah, cognitive absence or just the ability to witness thoughts, feelings, emotions as phenomenon, moment to moment, arising and subsiding, without fixating or identifying with them. So that's certainly a practice. You know, that is a specific practice to actually sit quietly and observe sights, sounds, but also emotions, feelings come and go in a completely transitory manner without um, associating, you know, or identifying with any of them. I think the other, you know. What's your, what's your most powerful hook? Like, you know, for me, it's always breath. I mean, pranayama is like for me, the only way into a successful meditation practice. Like I have to do something like count my breath, watch my breath, do a pattern, do this. And then I will, slip sometimes into a state of aware, non-awareness, the spot. (laughs) Um, But, and then when I return to observing that, oh, I've gone away and I'm making a list or whatever, all the things, then, then if I just start whatever breath practice I'm doing, which is somewhat arbitrary, um, obviously slowing your breath down, slowing your exhalation down relative to your inhalation is really effective in stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system. Rest, restore, and digest uh, part of your wing of your nervous system. But so for like, to me, that's just it. Like breathing. Like I, I would be, it would be so hard for me to sit down and get on my seat and just like be in a state of observation. I have to like, Hmm. I need the hook of a doing. Yeah. So, you know, a typical Vipassana practice, breath oriented Vipassana practice where you're using your breath as essentially the drishti to, you know, return consistently to that, to that sensation and that rhythm of the breath. That's certainly a very, very effective practice. But traditionally, and from a Vipassana, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you, there's no artifice to the, to the breath. You are just observing the quality of your breath as, it, as your body breathes itself instead of layering on a technique in order to affect both a nervous system response and also like a... a like a clearer point of focus. Does that make, is that right? Cause I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if, if Vipassana would be categorized as only unconscious breath versus conscious breath or essentially letting your breath exist as it exists on its own. Right. As, and then uh, observing it. Yeah. I, I think obviously the right. breath is this doorway into the subconscious because it, it's bi-directional. It's something that happens below the crest of consciousness and um, we can control and it. you can control it and you know it's 
and you can leverage it to move between states. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, oftentimes what we're trying to do is de-stress and relieve anxiety and move from sympathetic to parasympathetic. But you can also you should do, do my opposite. course next month, Krasno. I'm gonna toot my own horn. We'll do your <laughs> course. Um, but then you can also do the opposite. You know, sometimes you want more focus, you want more energy, you want right. more epinephrine and adrenaline. And so, you know, like Wim Hof breath or Tumo breath, for example, is really... Or just really fast, like percussive inhalation and exhalation. Yeah, it's really geared to stimulate the other direction, which is actually invoke more of a sympathetic state, which Mm -hmm. can be very useful prior to a learning bout or a athletic endeavor, et cetera. Well, also really powerful in actively stimulating your, your sympathetic nervous system and then consciously stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system, which is just creating, it's like putting your nervous system into weight training, essentially. It's like giving you mm-hmm. flexi- nervous system flexibility, which is yeah. heart rate variability, which yeah. one can measure. I'm really, I actually have never, I'm really interested in heart rate variability. And there's a, it's one of the things that I want to do in the new year. There's a couple of apps and there's obviously wearables, but I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in actually dialing into some of geeking out on that science, so I'm not generally so attracted to the wearables yeah. and science of it. But I think that's one that really speaks to my interest point. Yeah. Well, the Aura Ring measures heart rate variability. So does uh, Apollo Neuro. Um, right. So those are a couple um, that you can use. Uh, I think, you know, for me, that practice of establishing some form of drishti, whether or not that's the breath or a gaze point uh, or you know, a mantra that you either say out loud or say to yourself, you know, it could be mala beads. Essentially, there's all sorts of different tricks and tools that you can use to establish a single pointedness of mind, you know. Where you return to. Yeah. Jhana, Chan, Zen. Um, These are all traditions around, you know, that concept. And yeah, like what you say, the real practice is returning um, to that drishti and in many ways, one's happiness is based on how the duration it takes to return to that particular drishti. And that's a wonderful practice. You know, I, I think there's a wonderful practice to be had in just listening. And, um, you know, sound is a amazing phenomenon because I believe there's so much metaphor to sound. It arises out of the void, out of emptiness, um, out of the future, if you will, out of the infinite. There's very few things that people can experience as infinite, but silence is one of them. It's outside of location and, and time and space and has no form. And so to perceive or witness Uh, sound as phenomenon coming in and out of consciousness and getting so quiet that you can begin to notice the dozens upon dozens upon dozens of sounds that existed Mm -hmm. at any particular moment inside and out. Right. And, and know that you didn't put them there Mm -hmm. and that they just are coming and going. And, uh, but you are simply witness. Yes. It's a great witness locus. Yeah. You're the, blackboard upon which all of this phenomenon is etched 
And then, you know, in so doing, you become to realize that, you know, emotions and, and feelings and other phenomenon are not completely unlike sounds. You know, they come and they go. And sometimes you, they're really loud and sometimes yeah. they're really quiet. But And generally you didn't put them there, you know. And so you're like, you're not going to identify with a honk from a car. So why would you identify with a pang of envy that you get from watching someone accomplish something on Instagram or whatever? So I think that, you know, that's a very viable practice. And then, you know, I also like to kind of just sort You're of... You're also a musician, so that that also is very yeah, organic yeah. to you. You have like a very refined sense of, of sound and sound appreciation. Yeah, you become sort of the engineer of this polyphonic soundscape and so you know you can stand in line at a grocery store instead of reaching for your phone and getting triggered by the latest news headline you can just stand there and listen to this polyphonic symphony of sounds and start to place them across a stereoscape and it's a lot of fun and sometimes i do that up at like this pool up at the club that we belong to where i can begin to focus in on eight different simultaneous conversations and sort of like tune between them and sort of place them across a stereo field and some are behind me and some are to the left and some are to the right. And, you know, you can kind of tune into one and out of another. And really all that is, is just being here now. And if I'm there, I'm the loudest sound. I guarantee you. Yeah. Okay, no. <laughs> I'm like a quarter mile away, but I'm still the loudest sound. <laughs> I've got my Skylar canceling headphones. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, let's. So let, and then the, I'll just say the last one is that one practice that I find to be highly effective is really just a, like a half lidded meditation where you're kind of closing your eyes halfway. And it's not in some ways dissimilar to the sound meditation because what you're doing is you're observing the world as shadows and light. Mm-hmm, right. You're seeing everything and nothing. And, yeah. And not as objects that you've labeled, right. you know, in, in your field of awareness. And, um, then you sort of begin to kind of feel a sense of trippiness about that. And, you know, you're just seeing things sort of fluctuate, uh, with a lot of nuance and light and shadow, kind of this sort of interplay of Charles Giro. And then you can turn this, that same quality of attention back on yourself hmm. and ask yourself like, who is the witness and in many ways, not only come to the conclusion intellectually, but the feeling that there really is no witness at all, that there is no self, that this is a grand illusion. And so anyways, these are, I think some things that are that's interesting. A, that's a kind with. of a traditional Zen technique, right? That, that open eyed. Yeah. Like hazy, hazy, hazy drishti. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you know, and we don't have to take the conversation there, but the, the breakdown of this constant duality between witness and phenomenon or subject object or observer and the observed thing, you know, begins to really break down and life becomes felt as just a singular happening. Mm. And, you know, this is, really, really interesting within the context of quantum physics and relativity theory and essentially how phenomenon appears uh, within the universe and the requirement that 
there is a participant within all phenomenon and there is no singular fixed fundamental right thing that all of it exists somewhat subjectively and yet that explicit difference shares an implicit unity and these are the philosophical paradoxes that are fun to unwind anyways great soup great soup of eating from the great soup of consciousness yeah i mean i think like for example if you were to stare at the big dipper you know you're very used to like the stars in their own position you know creating the outline of this particular shape in the sky but you know if you were on jupiter or even on another place on planet earth the position of those stars would look completely different so what is the true position of those stars well there isn't a true position of those stars is that they require the The participant and then when you begin to sort of unpack what that means is that every single phenomenon that arises within consciousness is part of a relationship or every phenomenon that arises in and out of consciousness is a part of a relationship and then you know you start to look at like physics of like okay we can't even observe a particle without influencing the behavior of that of particle. The particle which is so, crazy to even quite wrap your head around yeah but i mean this is speaks to the core of buddhism the core of dependent origination and these ideas you know that that we aren't separate individuals living in some separate external universe that we are it and that we are tied into an absolutely mutually inter- interdependent fabric or web of life in which everything is dependent on everything else. And, you know, there's some physics to that too. Let's pivot because it works so nicely right into community. Because I think um, one of the really interesting things about you as an individual is that you are um, like a community builder. It's what you've been doing since you were, you know, early days in the music industry. You've been like creating happenings and bringing people together. You're an amazing connector. And at the same time, you're a little bit reclusive and actually really thrive on a whole lot of alone time. Mm -hmm. And you have, you have many, many satisfying, deep relationships with lots and lots of people and not very many, you have like like tons of wide and deep relationships that are substantial and satisfying and like, you know, back, like a really fertile back and forth, but you don't have a whole lot of like really best friends. And it's interesting. It's just something I've always been fascinated by you because you so clearly thrive on the community piece, but you also don't seem to need a whole lot of deep friendships, extensive friendships. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think, you know, part of that is slowly becoming whole over time, um, oneself. And so one reduces needs and I don't really need like thrust the requirements of my ego on a lot of people. So I think this is a phenomenon of the second half of life, to be honest, and this is actually baked into all sorts no, of traditions. No, I think traditions. it's your personality because there. I think there are people who are incredibly well, social and gregarious, and it's not a deficit of their, you know, egoic health. It's just who they are. I mean, I'm more social than you are, but yeah. you are far more. You have so many more 
ex, like really substantial acquaintances. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not germane to my personality. I, I just see this baked into a lot of traditions where, you know, in Taoism, you know, you're more likely to be sort of a Confucianist in your early life. And, you know, you're playing along with societal rituals and you're engaged in, um, right. Being know, a family person, if you have and, a family yeah, and, and right. And then, you know, you become an empty nester and then all of a sudden, you know, you're meandering around a misty mountaintop, you know, with a long white beard. This is what happens. I mean, it's also baked into Hinduism. I mean, you kind of start as student, you know, in brahmacharya and then you become a householder and then, or the equivalent of a householder. The, yeah. Or you, and then you have, you know, your eldest son or your daughter marries a man. I mean, this is at least in the tradition. And then you become literally a forest dweller. That's the word in Hindu or in Hindi. Um, and you know, and you move out of the house and you know, now you go probably, on your walkabout and you go on your walkabout I'm trying to get you to go on a walkabout. Yeah. You could report back. Yeah, I, you know, listen, I think that community, like we just talked about, everything in life is a relationship. You know, you can't divorce yourself from being in relationship. You know, you're in relationship, whether you like it or not. You know, there is always interference. You can't not interfere. It's just the nature of what it is to sure, be Sure, but there's so many different so, styles to the way you are in relationship. Yeah. So for me, I like high points of community. And then I like to balance that with a lot of alone, introspective, you know, inter Reset. introversion time. Yeah. And, you know, I, some people are very energized by community. I'm energized by community when it's happening, but then I'm exhausted by it on the other side of it and really do need significant time to gather myself and recoup. Like today and, after last night. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also like I get very keyed up at the, on the back end of community and generally have a hard time sleeping mm -hmm. the night that we host events. But again, like one of the best indicators of health and happiness are the number of social connections that you have, period. Um, and you know, yes, certainly emotional support. Yes, like accountability. Um, yes, you know, the sharing of interesting ideas and the sharing of thoughts. microbiome. But yeah, but <laughs> I mean, also the sharing of, you know, bugs. Uh, of bacteria, you know, the sociogenomic component of community. I mean, just being in connection with other people impacts your epigenetics, essentially what genes turn on and what genes turn off. Yeah, we were talking about that recently, about how we, our cells resemble the people we spend time with more than, in certain regards, more than our genetic family because of gene expression, correct? Am I because of gene expression and also the microbiome, I mean, right. generally like... That it's, this is also goes true for like obesity, for example. It's like, you know, generally, you know, rates of obesity are tied to social interactions. So essentially, if your social community is obese, there's a much, mm -hmm. much greater chance that you're going to be obese. And of course, this all makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're in a family or if you're in a community and you're eating certain kinds right. of food, shared culture, shared culture, there's all, all these kinds of sort of uh, social determinants. Mm -hmm that will kind of influence health and social and, and logistical, just like literally what's in your refrigerator and what do you do with the people? I mean, are you going out and playing tennis with your friends or are you hiking with them or are you, you know, mm -hmm. sitting around watching the football game? 
Yeah. There is no doubt that community is an absolute essential component of health. And for me this year, it's been fun to actually build some new friendships and, uh, and not a lot of them, but a few really ones that I actually really, really enjoy that, you know, there's a lot of intellectual sparring and exchange of kind of ideas that are a little bit bespoke and strange. And, you know, I, I do get a lot of satisfaction and I learn a lot in those environments. And that's been fun to be able to build new friendships sort of later in life because that doesn't happen so often. Well, and it it's, seems like you're now often choosing your friends because of the intellectual sparring more than before our friendships largely just came about from circumstance. We did the same things. We went to the same schools. We had kids the same age. And so we fell into rhythms together. And now you're, yeah. you're more, you're more consciously selective of yeah, where well, you I put your time. Decreasing appetite for sugar and small talk. <laughs> let's just say, um, yeah, I just really can't abide a lot of small talk anymore. It's just, I'm, I'm bored with it. And, um, and so, yeah, you know, I want to choose my conversations relatively carefully. And then just by nature of what I do is I'm in constant, deep motherfucking conversation yeah. all yes. the time. Some of them substantial and many of them just business oriented. So it's Whoa. like constant. Mostly yes. in this exact format. Right. And so I will be in a three hour conversation with a gastroenterologist or a neurologist or a neuroscientist or a virologist or, you know, a philosopher or some other mystic and sage or thought leader or author, et cetera. And then on the backside of that, I'm exhausted Yeah, and I need to go, you know, talk to no one, talk to no <laughs> one. And, and it is really beautiful because just by strange circumstance in my life and also you know, the fact that I, I have been sort of community builder and community organizer for some time, I've been able to build a lot of relationships and be the recipient of a tremendous amount of knowledge and expertise. And, you know, this particular conversation right now is sort of a squeezing of that sponge. Um, it, it is generally very gratifying for me to have structured my life around conversations that matter. Yeah, with people who are smarter than you in their own respective fields, almost all of them. I mean, you've really put yourself through a PhD program in the last three years. It's pretty amazing. I mean, a very odd and diverse and cross-disciplinary PhD, but you really have gone back to school in an autodidactic way. It's been very... Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, certainly yeah, it stimulates your curiosity, keeps your, your brain functioning and, and expanding, but there, you know, is the social, you know, dimension of it. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can chase fame and, you know, infamy and, um, notoriety and followers and engagement and social media friends, all that kind of stuff. Or you can run from it. Or you can run from like it. Like I or, do. <laughs> yeah. Or you can just, um, do your thing. Or, you yeah. know, be respected by yeah. the people who you, you respect. respect. And that is the best form of fame. And so that is what I'm striving for yeah. is to it. be, you know, respected by, you know, my peers and. And to um, keep pushing who your peer base is out in every direction. Yeah. It's very cool to witness. So I think, you know, that, that probably dovetails well into purpose. meaning and purpose and, you know, I actually have a, a lot of 
kind of different viewpoints towards this concept because yeah, you know, certainly you want to wake up every morning and feel inspired by what you're doing and feel like your life matters and that you're having impact and that you're helping to make the world a better place and alleviate suffering and, and bring, you know, greater knowledge to the world such that, you know, you're bending the arc of history in some fashion. So to leave your campground better than you found it. All of those things at the same time, I think, you know, we can become so obsessed with purpose in our life that we're never here and now inhabiting, you know, the present moment. So we're always envisioning a future or some sort of creating some sort of imagined memory, you know, whether good or bad. And it's like Alan Watts's story about that one teacher of his who he said it was so impactful for him because his, he, I think he was a, I think he was a Zen teacher, but mm-hmm. his, his goal was to essentially leave no trace to not to not to leave a body of work, not to, you know, he had his students. So I guess he left a trace through the people that he impacted, but he had like consciously had no ego around creating a legacy. And, you know, I mean, so many of us, and I think in many of us in a very healthy way are very interested in what our legacy might be. And that's clearly something we need in this world quite desperately is people who are have a fire under their ass to leave the place better than we found it. But it is also interesting to be some, to, to be a, a teacher and a liver who, who lives simply, but also has no ambition around, around legacy. I mean, we, we sanctify product over process. And so, you know, we're very concerned with artifice and fossil record and, you know, what we might produce And, you know, that often keeps us trapped in some sort of future or some sort of imagined future instead of, you know, the here and the now. And, you know, you know, Alan Watts is great. He talks about this quite a bit, but, you know, he talks about like the, the course of water, you know, water doesn't really have any purpose. It flows, you know, downstream into the ocean just to be evaporated into the sky just Mm -hmm. to fall as snow back on the top of the mountain just to melt to go back into the stream again and you know there is a purposelessness of water while being incredibly impactful and powerful and necessary and i mean you know there's probably nothing (laughs) more important than water for, for our particular species but it is right. It has its own. It has its just a deep grace. Yeah. It, it's not that it doesn't have a function. It doesn't have utility or function. Right. right. But it doesn't. Have, its course. Right. Doesn't have purpose. Capital P purpose. And you know, I, you know, I think about you know meditation specifically uh, in this regard. I mean, and you know, we've spent most of, or at least I've spent most of our journey together you know, creating, you know, a bigger tent for meditation or a bigger tent for yoga, quite literally with Wanderlust. And, you know, always talk using kind of verbiage around like demystifying ancient practices and all this stuff. And sort of hand in hand with that has become the sort of the commodification, commercialization, popularization of practices like meditation. And and so many people are doing it for some purpose, for Mm -hmm. some reason. Well, you know, I'm going to 
you know, perform more optimally at work. Right. I'm going to hack at work. I'm going to get a better ass. I'm going to, right. There's yeah, generally like six pack abs or, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, grow gray matter in my brain or, you know, I'm going to lower cortisol levels right. or I'm going to increase insulin sensitivity and all of those things in and of themselves, um, are fine, but to meditate for a whole litany of goals and purposes completely undermines the, the point, point of <laughs> right. meditating. Right. Those are happy kind of by processes, by products, but not by products or by processes really mm-hmm. of a meditation practice. And those benefits will be self-evident, but the entire purpose to the right. degree that there is a purpose to meditating <laughs> is purposelessness. It's right. just to be here now and to be absolutely present, you know, given the attention economy and the age of distraction, every single ping and ding vying for our our conscious awareness moment to moment. I mean, you know, purposelessness might be right. The the best best medicine we can, we can possibly apply culturally and personally. Yeah. Just the ability to cultivate a, present moment Mm -hmm. nostalgia or a love and yearning for the now Mm -hmm. just to completely be present here for each other um, is, you know, potentially the most precious gift that anyone can give. So your presence, wouldn't our kids be super pissed if we just wrapped up little notes of love for them and left it under the tree and there was no iPhone (laughs) <laughs> no vanity desk. Oh, man. Yeah. We would be very unpopular. The present but. of presence. <laughs> but, you know, I, all of these, you know, we can create these kind of taxonomies for holistic health and classifications and five components for this and hacks for that and, you know, lists and bullet points. And I know that we've always uh, been loath to somewhat do Codify things so yeah. neatly. And, you know, all of these things have an intersectionality to them. They're a one big Venn diagram and we're trying to find, you know, the places of, of overlap and intersection. I mean, community and exercise, you know, have a tremendous amount of overlap. It's like, you know, playing tennis with your friends or whatever, you know, thing that you like to do. There's a lot of food and community is food and community. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, none of these things exist on their own. And, you know, health in general, which I've begun to believe is relatively synonymous with happiness, or you certainly can't have happiness without a good degree of health, relies on a whole matrix and interconnection between all of these things. Um, But don't you think that it's, it is useful in the, in the breaking down and in making like a food pyramid of, you know, holistic health goods? It's, it is good to do an inventory. And I would say that's what one thing I'm like, not a huge, like new year, new you, you know, like make your resolutions. I'm not really, I've never been that attracted to that, that concept, but I actually do think it's really, it's important to do inventory of our lives and to really look in an unemotional, very honest way about where we're doing really well and where we're definitely falling short. You know, I mean, it, I think it's, it's really important because mm-hmm. that's, that is, too, that too is a key part of living an examined life. I agree. I mean, the new year is a superficial superimposition of 
of uh, you know coerced inventory, <laughs> if you will. Um, but it can have really yeah, you know, it can positive. Be, it can be potent. It can be potent. It can have positive yeah. results. You know, oftentimes when bracketed as resolutions, they kind of end up in the dustbin. And so this is kind of why it's really helpful to think of all of these modalities as not like diets or one-off practices. but Exercise regimens. Yeah, but just a way to live one's life. And this is why it's very helpful not to become particularly neurotic or fundamentalist about any of them because then... You'll, you know, you'll you, fall off the wagon. You yeah. just have to creep towards better balance in all five areas. And all of us have an easier time with one or two and have to like do the donkey work of, yeah. you know, the things that we don't have a, have a inclination for. Yeah. The chopping wood and the carrying water. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why the whole one day at a time ethos is baked into so many of these uh, traditions, traditions, you know, spiritual traditions or Alcoholics Anonymous, et cetera. Mm-hmm is that, you know, just today I'm going to align my works and actions with my highest principles. Just tonight I'm not going to have a glass of wine. Just tonight. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. it's going to be really hard. At 6 o'clock I'm going to be really, really pressed to yeah. well, not open that Cabernet. But I, I think I'm actually, yeah, Thursday to Sunday. I've got to get that jam going. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, Jesus didn't reveal to Satan how many days he was going to be out in the desert. He wasn't like, I'm going to be out here for 40 days. So Don't find you, me. So you've got, uh, you know, another 39 to come and tempt me. You know, he, he just dealt with him one day at a time. And, you know, we can all do that. We can just say to the devil, you know, hey, just today, I'm not going to drink. I'll meet you tomorrow and we'll rediscuss it. You know, this is why you never quit drinking for 365 Forever. days right. because uh, you don't want it's a recipe for failure. You don't want the devil to know that he's got that many opportunities to tempt you back. So <laughs> anyways. All right, Mr. Yeah. Krasno, um, that was fun to chat. I need to yeah. go um, check in with our kiddos yeah. and uh, wrap some presents. All right. Some real. Some real presents. presents. Okay. <laughs> um, love you. Good to be with you. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Skylar. Hopefully you found a few little gems of wisdom in there. Uh, Skylar has a new yoga program launching in February, and Skylar and I have a number of joint retreats at Commune Topanga coming in 2023. So keep abreast of our various excursions on onecommune.com. And of course, I really encourage you to check out the Commune course platform. As I mentioned, there are a lot of yoga apps and meditation apps, but there's really no other platform that serves as a one-stop destination for holistic well-being that covers so many of the praxis and modalities that I just discussed with Skylar. Commune is really, truly unique in that it both explains the mechanisms of health and also provides the modalities and praxis that pair with those mechanisms to achieve true holistic well-being. And really, the roster, and I will suspend humility for a moment, (laughs) is truly unparalleled. So you can try it for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. It makes a big difference. 
You can always email me at jeffk at onecommune.com with suggestions and ideas and criticism of the constructive variety. And I want to send just huge love to my team who works tirelessly to make this show happen week over week. So thank you, Silvana, Violet, Megan, Jake, Ruby, Ryan, and the entire Commune team. I love you guys. Okay, that's all from the Commune for this year. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'll be here for you.